And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Father, we thank you for these words that our Lord gave to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, a rabbi of rabbis, and yet he did not understand his need to be born again like so many of us today. But thank you for the pictures throughout the Tanakh that even as Moses lifted up that pole, the helpless Israelites could do nothing but believe in your provision. And for all who took you at their, your word, you said they were instantly healed. May we look to the Lord Jesus who is lifted up on Golgotha and then raised from the dead, just as you predicted, that when we call upon him in faith, thank you that we are instantly healed and forever saved from the judgment of sin. May we never be ashamed of the message. May we seek with all of our hearts in these days of lukewarmness and apathy to pursue you with warm, passionate hearts for Christ. Our Father, today we come humbly before you. We know that the word that we are reading today is the book that you gave, the only book you wrote. And so may we be humble as we open the Holy Bible. May we say with the psalmist, teach us, O Lord, Speak to us today. Father, speak through me. My preparation and study means little. Unless you fill me and anoint me and minister through me. May you do that today, and I ask it by the Holy Spirit's power and in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Take God's word, would you, this morning, and turn to the book of 1 Kings chapter 17. If you're new to the Bible, just find the Psalms. It's about dead center. And scan to the left. And right before First and Second Chronicles, you will find First and Second Kings. We're in First Kings 17. And if you're joining us for the first time, you'll be interested to know that last time we began a seven, maybe eight-week series on the prophet Elijah. Elijah was a man who walked with God, and there are many lessons that we can learn from his life that will help us to walk with God. And I can't think of anything more exciting, more thrilling than the opportunity to walk with the living God. It's the most rewarding of all experiences on earth, but in many ways, some of the most challenging experiences, especially if you lived in a day like Elijah did a day of great evil, great trouble, great pestilence, not all that different from our day. But God uses difficult times, trials, to build us and to shape us, which is why James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Not if, but when. They are a part of life. The trials and tests of life are designed to make us more dependent on God. It was A.W. Tozer who once said, when God wants to use a man greatly, he must first test him deeply. And never is that truer than in the life of Elijah the prophet. He was tested in difficult times. Now, you know that if you study history, you cannot separate the greatness of an individual from the time in which he lived. And so just remember, we studied it in depth. If you were not here, you might want to go back and listen to last week's message 
But Elijah ministered during the time of the kings. Initially, the kingdom was united for the first 120 years. Each king, Saul, David, Solomon, reigned for 40 years. But then because of Solomon's pig-headedness and moral compromise, God split the kingdom into the 10 northern tribes called Israel. They had 20 kings, everyone was evil. So in the Kings, or when it's written in the Chronicles, you read of a good king, you immediately know you're in the southern kingdom. They too had 20 kings, eight of whom were good, 12 of whom were evil. The northern kingdom had as their capital Samaria, the southern kingdom had as their capital Jerusalem. And so Elijah lived after the time of the United Kingdom, before the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity, during the times of the kings, and so first and second kings. Now, as you read through those books, you will read simultaneously kings ruling at the same time, because sometimes it's describing someone in the northern kingdom, sometimes someone in the southern kingdom. And if you read chapters 12 through 16 that preface this, that is describing the time after the kingdom split, you're going to find that everyone in that section, with the exception of Asa, which tells you he is in the southern kingdom, Judah, all the kings are characterized by murder, by hatred, by bloodshed, by idolatry, by malice, by conspiracy, and immorality. These people, these leaders in Israel's history led the people deep into evil. And the worst king of all the kings was a fellow by the name of Ahab, who again ministered in the northern kingdom when Elijah was the prophet. In 1 Kings 16.30, you might want to look in your text, the page before, it says, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That's his claim to fame. He is evil beyond all the others. Before him, Omri, uh, his daddy, was given that title. But now Ahab wrenches the honor, so to speak, he is more evil than any of them. And if you look at 1631, we're told that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. He married a woman who appears to be demon-possessed. She served her demon god, Baal, who passionately uh, led uh, this woman in the murder of God's prophets in introducing idolatry, Baal worship into the nation of Israel. And when God summarizes the influence of this couple in 1 Kings 21, 25, he says, surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. And so that was the day in which Elijah ministered. And again, you'll never really appreciate what he did until you understand the time frame in which he lived. The people were on the moral skids. They were going deeper and deeper into sin. It looked so bleak. But Elijah was willing to stand up as God's man, as God's representative, because he believed God. He lived in a day of spiritual pygmies. But he was not afraid to believe God. But how did he get to that place? I mean, certainly it was not convenient or comfortable to stand up for God when you were alone in many ways. How did he become such a great man of faith? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. How does God develop faith? And so you can see the title of the message is Faith 
in the crucible. I want to begin by reading our passage, 1 Kings chapter 17. We want to start reading in verse 8. Follow along in your Bible. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please, Get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And she was going to get it. He called to her and said, as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may, that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die." Then Elijah said to her, do not fear, go do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me, and afterward you may make one for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. Elijah, he is an electrifying prophet. He is a gutsy kind of guy. He is willing to go into the presence of a wicked king, and as the chapter opens, he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand... Surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. That's a courageous man. His life could be snuffed out by this king in a moment's time. But he goes to deliver a message. And of course, God answers his prayer, and both Jesus and James tells us it did not rain for three and a half years. He was able to have boldness and courage before this king because he was standing before God. He had just had an audience with the king of kings, and so he knew how to stand before this king. You know how to stand before men when you know how to kneel before God, and this was a man who knew how to pray. He had an earnest, fervent prayer life, and he believed that God was able to do precisely all that he had promised. And as we studied last time, he was clinging to some promises that God had made in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 11. Moses warned and pleaded with the people of Israel, beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. Elijah knew that God was able to do that which he had promised. And he knew that if the people went into wickedness, that the people needed to be disciplined, that God could withhold the rain. Elijah did not just dream up that the heavens would dry up. He had a promise that he was clinging to. He was looking to what God had revealed. And if you are going to be a man or a woman or a teenager of great courage and boldness, then you need to know the Word of God. Listen, if Elijah didn't know Deuteronomy chapter 11 was in the Bible, then he would not have known that God could make the rain stop. He had a promise to claim. And it's in the Bible, it's in the Word of God that God reveals His plans and His promises that we need to stand on. 
But if you don't read it, if you don't study it, you'll never be able to pray as you ought and see God work. Now, sometimes when we read of a prophet like Elijah, men like him, we think that they lived in a different world, that they breathed different air. And yet the apostle James reminds us that he had a nature just like ours. He was just like you and me. Listen to James. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah clung to a promise of God. He claimed it with all his heart through earnest prayer, and God stopped the rain for three and a half years. His motivation, of course, was to see the people of Israel repent of their Baal worship, to return to the living God, that God might be glorified. Now, we studied it last week. Baal, of course, was the fertility god, the so-called storm god. The pagans believed that Baal was responsible for fructifying the earth. And so if Baal cannot respond in his area of expertise, if Baal cannot do, quote-unquote, his specialty, then his deity would be shattered as the cracks got wider and wider and wider as the rain stopped. So in asking God to stop the rain, Elijah, in essence, is saying to Ahab that your God, Baal, your dead God, is not like the one true God, Jehovah. So God answers Elijah's prayer. And if you remember last time, we left him at a drying brook where God provides for his servant meat and bread through the ravens. Look at 1 Kings 17 and then verse 7 at the end of that descriptive Uh, time in his life, it says it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Was that the end of the road for Elijah? No, not at all. God was not going to leave him simply at a dry riverbed. God had so much more he wanted to do through him, but before God could work through him, God had to do something to him. God had to minister to him in a place called Zarephath. And before Elijah can really believe God to have the kind of encounter he will have with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah, God has to develop his faith more deeply. And so what we find here in verses 8 to 24 are some lessons on how God develops faith so that Elijah can grow and so that we in turn can grow. Now, as you step through these verses, you can see his faith growing through the difficulties through the struggles. God puts him in a crucible, as it were. God puts him in a smelting pot. God puts some difficult times in his life because God wants to develop his life further. And we're going to see that today he's going to learn to trust God with the supply of oil and flour, and then he's going to even trust God to raise someone from the dead. And only then, as we will see next time, is he able to stand before King Ahaz and for God to call down fire from heaven there on top of Mount Carmel. Now, when you read a passage like this, you must never forget 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all Scripture is literally theos neutos, God-breathed, we say inspired. All Scripture is inspired. It's the breath of God. All Scripture is inspired and it is profitable. All Scripture, that includes Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nam, and yes, 1 Kings. Now remember, the book of 1 Kings is not simply a record of what God has said. 
It's a record of what God is saying. Sometimes Christian people think, well, the Old Testament, the Tanakh, that's, that's for those people in that time. We are under the New Testament. No, it's for all time. Remember the early church in the early days and the early years, they did not have the first book of the New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament. They share the whole plan of salvation from the Old Testament. And Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 15, for whatever was written in earlier times, and earlier times is that reference to the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament. One of my commitments from this pulpit is not simply to teach the New Testament, the Old Testament. So typically I do a New Testament study and then an Old Testament study. Why? Because it's all inspired and you need both. And so Paul says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Again, the earlier times he's writing of in this context is the Old Testament era. And he's reminding us that the instruction and the application of the Old Testament time frame did not exhaust itself in that time frame. In other words, when the Holy Spirit moved the men of God to write the Old Testament scriptures, he was not just writing it for the people of Israel, he was also writing it for the people who live in our day. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, after he goes through a number of experiences that Israel had gone through, that this was written, he says, for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now I say that to remind you that Elijah belonged to an elite group of biblical characters through whom God did the miraculous. The miraculous is not an even flow all the way through the scriptures. It's only on the great ganglions of biblical history that God does miracles. He did no miracles through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The first one he does miracles through is Moses and for a short time through Joshua. And then hundreds of years go by, God does no miracles until Elijah and Elisha stand on the plate and God does it through them. And hundreds and hundreds of years go by and God doesn't do another miracle through an individual. He does miracles, but not through an individual until Jesus and the apostles come on the scene. And then there'll be another great cluster of miracles as we studied in the Revelation. So it would be a mistake to conclude that though he did the miraculous, that he was somehow different from us. No, there's things that we can learn about walking in faith. This passage was written for our instruction. And just as God used these trials to develop Elijah's faith, he wants to use the trials and the crucibles of life that you may be in to develop your and mine faith. So what I find here are three critical lessons that God brought this man through to develop his faith. Lesson number one, we are first given something about the compliance of faith. If you're using a note-taking outline and they are there on the website, you can print out the entire bulletin every week. And I encourage someone in your family to do that. Print out a copy for every member of the family. We begin with the compliance of faith. Now we need to learn something about the compliance or the obedience of Elijah's faith. Please notice verse eight. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, the first word in verse eight is then, making you ask then when. By the way, I hope if you're online, you have a Bible in your lap. I preach from the Word of God, and I promise you, you'll get 50% more out of any sermon I preach. I'm not here to blather my own opinion. I'm here to teach you God's Word. You need a Bible. If you don't have one and you live locally, come tonight to meet the pastor. 
The first word is then, then when. Please note that the word of the Lord came to Elijah after his brook dried up. And of course, for many of us, it's not until our brook dries up that we are through some real trials that we are ready to hear the word of the Lord. But when it dries up, we often then have ears to hear because God has our attention and we're listening very attentively. When our brook is full, we tend to rest in that. We're too full of ourselves. And some of you today do not have a hunger for God's word because you're too full of yourself. God may need to bring you through a brook experience to create that hunger. Remember what Moses said to the children of Israel just before they went into the promised land? The book of Deuteronomy records three great sermons that he preaches. Here in the first sermon in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. But then listen to what he warned in verse 10 of this chapter. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land, which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities, which you did not build, and houses full of good things, which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns, which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant. And you shall eat and be satisfied. Then watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Unfortunately, they did not heed the warning. They went into the promised land. They were enamored with the blessings, but they forgot the source. They forgot the blesser. They forgot God. And of course, they ended up worshiping false gods and worshiping through false religious systems of the people in the land. And that's why they're in the mess they are in in Elijah's day. May I remind you, when this country was founded, it was founded in great difficulty. The men and women who came here were plagued by sickness and disease. They fought to stay alive just to survive the first several winters. And these men and women, these pilgrims, these Puritans called on God. Why? Because he was first in their life. God was first in our churches. He was first in our schools. He was first in our homes. He was first in our government. Now we have a generation who have inherited the richest culture on the face of the earth, and in the process, we have forgotten God. But our brook sometimes needs to dry up. And if you are slack this morning and proud and arrogant, if you know God, watch out, because he may soon dry up your brook. Now, he may dry up your brook, as we'll see, even when you're in the center of his will. But sometimes God needs to get our attention. So when it's dried up, there's no other way sometimes but to look up. And so God's developing this man's faith. Notice what God says here to Elijah in verse 9. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Elijah had impossible odds because widows don't have food during a famine. But God says, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. Now, that fascinates me. One, that she's a widow, but also her mailing address. As you can see on this map, Zarephath is about 100 miles 
from the brook called Cherith in modern-day Lebanon. And it was certainly not an easy walk. It was through a gross, harsh wilderness region. I've been to that section. But Elijah's no wimp. And so Zarephath, it's a suburb of Sidon. It's an ancient Phoenicia. And if you look in chapter 16 and verse 31, we read it already, you discover that the name of the king ruling the Sidonians is Ethbael, Ethbael. He took his own title because of his worship of Baal. That's Jezebel's daddy. And so Elijah is going to Baalsville. He's going to Gentile land. And God is telling him to leave his hiding place and to move to Jezebel's home turf, not to bury him, but the text says to provide for him. And so to really appreciate what's happening, you have to know something about this city called Zarephath. It's enemy territory. It's a thoroughly wicked and depraved place. And of course, he makes a journey and he is, he is very much a wanted man. Remember, this is enemy territory. When we come to chapter 18 and verse 10, we'll read, as the Lord your God, Obadiah, this prophet of, I mean, this servant of God who's caring for the prophets of God, comes up to uh, Elijah and says, as the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master, meaning wicked King Ahab, where my master has not sent to search for you. See what God's saying? God is saying here in verse 9, Elijah, I want you to go to the heart of enemy territory because I have a widow who's going to provide for you. You don't go to the poorest of all people, especially during the time of a famine, to get provision. Not, of course, unless God tells you to and you believe what God says. So he moves from his hiding place. He may have been there over a year difficult to be precise, maybe a year and a half, maybe an equal period of time in this place called Zarephath. But he goes from this solitary brook to this widow. He goes from the frying pan really into the fire. Look at verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, please give me a little water in a jar that I might drink. Now, by the way, many places in the Bible are named by things that God did or things that went on in that particular town or the work or the industry that the town was known for, and Zarephath is no exception. It's a word that literally means a a smelting place. It was a place where they basically smelted metals in archaeology affirms that very truth. It reveals that there were furnaces that had been built here in this place. It was the primary place where they built the little idols used for the worship of Baal. What Detroit is to the automobile, Zarephath was to the worship of Baal. Now think for a moment. Think about the irony and the danger. God says, Elijah, I'm going to send you to enemy territory where Baal is primarily worshipped, where Jezebel, who has been murdering the prophets, that's her hometown, I'm sending you there and I'm going to provide for you through a widow. Now that doesn't make sense. But God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Notice how the situation unfolds, starting in verse 11. As she was going to get it, the war the water jar. 
He called her and said, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. He sounds a little demanding, doesn't he? First, he wants a drink of water in the middle of a severe drought. Now he wants a piece of bread. You see, God, through Elijah, is giving a, a, a test to this woman, but God is also working in Elijah's heart. He needs to be compliant. He needed to be obedient to go to this place to begin with, and she needs to be compliant. She needs to be obedient to do what the prophet of God says. So notice he's working on her as well. Verse 12 says, but she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat and die. Welcome to Zarephath, Elijah, a town whose name means smelting pot where God wants to refine the faith of two individuals. Now, please note here that this widow is going to be used of God to provide for Elijah. Now, she thinks she's going to give her last meal, as we'll see in a moment. She thinks it's over. But notice several things about this widow. She's an interesting lady. Number one, she's a believer in the true God of Israel. She prefaces her statement to Elijah with the words, as the Lord, that is Y-H-W-H, as the Lord your God lives. I mean, she's a breed apart. She's living in Pagansville. And she ignores what all the people are doing. And she believes in the one true God. Now, if you remember from the book of 1 Samuel, it's repeatedly mentioned there was a God, especially that the Philistines worshipped by the name of Dagon. Dagon was Baal's daddy. Dagon, uh, his name meant corn. And so they worshipped Dagon, and they also worshipped Baal, his son, because through uh, the fertility of the land, they supplied corn and oil. And interesting, when the land is divided by Moses into the 12 tribes, Moses says this in Deuteronomy 33, 24. Uh, this area that uh, Zarephath is in was given to the tribe of Asher. And in giving the blessing of the 12 tribes, he says to Asher, may he be favored by his brothers and may he dip his foot in oil. In other words, he is being given a fertile region filled with corn and oil, but it's running out. And Baal, who is supposed to supply it, seems unable. And so it's, again, fascinating that this woman, she doesn't look for some idol. She doesn't look for some good luck charm like all the other people are doing where they're crying out to Baal. No, she believes Baal is no God at all but the God of Elijah is the one true God. But second, I want you to notice, not only is she a believer, she's destitute. It says here in verse 12, her own testimony, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. In addition to having lost her husband and her sustenance, it's clear too that she's lost her hope. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may die. She's saying, this is my son and mine's last meal. And after we eat, we have nothing left. We're just going to die. We're going to starve to death. I'm on my last dime. Don't ask me to give anything. Don't ask me to help you. And yet, 
This is the woman that God promises to care for Elijah through, feeding Elijah and her son and herself is a physical impossibility. It wasn't possible to feed even one meal to all three of them. But in Elijah's thinking, if this is the woman that God wants to use, then it's entirely possible because with God, all things are possible. And so Elijah passes the test, but now in his faith, he is going to test this woman's faith. Look at verse 13. Then Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me, and afterward you may make one for your son. Now, why and how could Elijah speak that way? Because his faith was growing. He was getting stronger. Your faith is like a muscle. The more you exercise it, the more you respond, the greater is your capacity to trust God. You can't talk that way like Elijah did unless you walk this way as Elijah did. You can't encourage others to believe God if you haven't been down that road yourself. You cannot light someone else's torch if yours is not burning, but his was burning. He knew that a handful of flour and a little oil was no problem at all for God. And he knew this not from secondhand stories, not from academic theories. He knew it firsthand because he had already seen God provide for him supernaturally at a brook. Do you know this in your experience that God is able to provide or is it just something you read in a book? God wants you to know that the key to making this a reality in your experience, the key to unlocking his faithfulness to you is when you walk by faith. And to walk by faith, it's unlocked for us right here in this verse. Did you catch it? Look again at verse 13. Then Elijah said to her, two words I want you to circle, do not fear, go do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first, circle that word first, and bring it out to me, and afterward, circle or underline that word afterward, first bring it out to me, and afterward you may make one for yourself and for your son. Now, that's a difficult command that she receives from this man of God. Make the cake for him first. She could have thought, well, that's kind of selfish of him. That's unkind. Me and my son, this is our last meal. She had been rationing the food carefully. She had just enough for one final meal, and Elijah wants it. Can you see this woman? She's gathering her sticks. She's got her little boy on her hip. And the man of God says, trust me, widow. Trust that the Lord God of Israel, whom you name, will take care of you, but you must first give to me the preacher, and then afterward, God will take care of you. Now, to have a stranger ask for a little water is one thing, but Elijah wants first crack at this widow's last meal. Now, he's not being cruel He is building her faith. God is the instrument. He is the man of God. He is teaching her a word from God so that she too can grow in her faith as he has been growing in his faith. Now listen, I want you to listen carefully this morning. Pull up the shade, open the window. God has a blessing for you. Maybe not the way the prosperity theologians will teach you, but he has a blessing for you and I don't want you to miss it. 
Just know that God doesn't provide indiscriminately for his people. When you read the promises of God in Scripture, for the most part, they fall into two categories, conditional promises and unconditional promises. Unconditional blessings are blessings that God is going to do no matter what. For instance, if you've been born from above, then you've been given as a down payment, as an earnest, as a deposit, God the Holy Spirit living in your bosom. And he is God's guarantee that the work God began, he will complete. That someday God is going to give you a resurrected body. Even if you've not always been consistent in your walk with Jesus Christ, if you are truly born again, God is going to pull off a resurrection someday where he is going to take you to heaven. But then there are many blessings of God that are conditionally unlocked by your faith. I will bless you if you obey this promise. And I will not bless you if you disobey this promise. For instance, it's not automatic that your children will grow up to love the Lord. Proverbs 22, Deuteronomy 6, Ephesians 6 teaches that God's word must be first in your heart. You have to willingly, consistently, because it's in your heart, teach it to your children as you walk in the way, as you rise up. And then and only then do you have the promise that your children won't jettison the faith, but they will continue to walk in the way of righteousness. Another example might be John 15, 11, where Jesus promises our joy will be full if we obey him. Another might be John 14, 21, where God says he will reveal himself to us. He'll make himself known to you in a more profound way as you obey. You know why some of you have such a dry, sour time with God? Because you're not obeying what you know. But when you're walking in the middle of God's will, it's the most exciting thing in the world when God takes this book, the Bible, and he speaks to you. Now, please understand the principle that God elucidates here in 1 Kings 17 is not some isolated incident. In fact, I find it intriguing that very often when God wants to test a person's spiritual life, that he goes to their material possessions. It's interesting that of the 38 parables that Jesus tells, 16 of them deal with the subject of possessions. And God often examines whether or not we're putting him first by the way we are using the things that he has entrusted to us. And very often when Jesus wants to test a person's spiritual condition, he goes right to their pocketbook, right to the things they own. The way you manage what God has entrusted to you, because it's his, it's not yours. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You're just a steward, I'm just a steward. But if you want to know how you're doing spiritually, look at the way you're managing what God has entrusted to you. It's an old, maybe worn out statement. Purse strings reveal heart strings, but it's true. It's a biblical axiom. So God did not need this widow's flour and oil. He wants to bless this widow. Look at verse 14. For thus the Lord God of Israel, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of the Lord, and she and, and, and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. Now, I take it this widow had really one of two choices. She could have said, I'm sorry, this is all the bread, all the oil I have, you can't have it. 
Or she could have said, and this is obviously what she thought, God said through this man of God that I am to give to him first. And if I will give to him first, he promises to take care of me and my son and Elijah through this entire drought. Now, it contradicts logic. I know it's illogical, but like Elijah, she believed as the Lord lives, he is able to perform all that which he has promised. Listen to what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 3, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of your produce so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 6, 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour it out into your lap for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. It's an issue of priorities, whether or not we will put God first. And if we do not, God does not suffer. We are the ones who suffer. Haggai, the prophet, spoke of such priorities. The people, remember, he's a post-exilic prophet. The people were back in the land. They were supposed to be rebuilding the temple, and they're living in plush paneled houses, and God's house is in ruins. And so the prophet steps up, and he says, now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. God is exhorting his people to think about the time and the way they are using their money. Consider, mull on this, run it over in your head. So he gives them something to run over, roll, roll over in their heads. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put it into a purse with holes. Now, God's not advocating drunkenness. He's just saying something about the supply of the wine. And because these people had given God second place, the very things they were seeking after and worshiping, well, they were in financial bondage. The harder they worked, you eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. They were killing themselves. It was coming in, but it was going out faster, to use his metaphor. And he who earns, earns wages to put it into a purse with holes. They're shot through with the inflation that comes from God's hand as an act of discipline. And so God said through Haggai in chapter 1, verse 9, you look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. These people were not seeing God's provision, God's way. Why? Because their priorities were way out of whack. See, ultimately, it's an issue of faith. And whether or not we're living by faith is seen by whether or not we put God first. And one of the greatest signs that we are growing, maturing, changing, and becoming more like Christ is seen in the way we manage the money God has given to us. Now, as far as we know, this widow never got rich, but God met her needs. God provide for her daily bread needs. God doesn't promise to make you rich. But when you put him first, he promises to meet your needs so this widow heard God speaking by faith. She obeyed. She honored God, and God opened for her the windows of heaven. Look at verse 16. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, 
nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord which he spoke through Elijah. Now do not forget here, there's something that's continuous in this miracle. God doesn't drop 25 pound bags of flour sagging up against her walls. No, this is a daily quiet drama of walking by faith of the jar and the jug. When she went to the cupboard on Monday, there was enough flour in the jar and enough oil for Monday, one day at a time. And it went on for weeks, for months, at least over a year. Every morning, there was a fresh episode of God's provision. She could have sung morning by morning, new mercies I see. And God didn't say that the jar of meal will overflow. He just said it would never be exhausted. Now, that's the obedience. That's the compliance of faith as seen both in Elijah and in the widow. There's something else I want us to learn if our faith is to develop, and it's the challenge of faith. The challenge of faith there in your note-taking outline. Look now, if you will, at verse 17. Now, it came about after these things. When you read that, you're forced to ask, after what things? After his encounter with Ahab and after his time at the brook and after the miracle of God providing for a starving widow and her son by providing meals of bread and after God's promise that the oil and the flour would stay until the famine was over. After these things, now comes an even greater test of faith. Now, it came about, verse 17, now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Now, the Hebrew word for breath is neshama. It's the same word that's used in Genesis when the Scripture says that God made Adam out of the dust of the ground and he breathed into him the breath of life. We're not talking about some respiratory ailment as the liberal critics try to posit in our day. They say, well, you know, he just had a respiratory problem. He was short on breath. No, he was dead. He was dead dead. Now, for many days, this widow and her son with Elijah had enjoyed seeing God's provision day after day, month after month. But now the breath of life was gone. We're told in verse 18, so she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? That's not a compliment. She explodes in anger. She evidently believed that there was a relationship between Elijah being a man of God and this judgment that had come on her home. Translated, paraphrased, why did I ever invite you into my home? Why did I ever have the misfortune of meeting you, Elijah? She's in the process of lashing out after the only one who's ever prayed for her, who sought God for her, who cared for her, who interceded for her, and can still help her. But she not only blames him, she blames herself for this son dying, brought up into the recesses of her mind, some sin in the past, notice. You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. In her memory, there was some dark sin, not named here, but it dwarfed all her other memories. 
We're not told what it is, but she connects it with this judgment from God. She's thinking that some past sin in her life, that God who had decided to lift her up and to bless her was now throwing her down to the ground by bringing her child in death. And she is holding that little lifeless boy in her arms. Elijah compassionately speaks to this widow. He doesn't lash out. Look at verse 19. He meets her in her grief. Give me your son. Then he took her from her bosom, which tells you he's a little boy, and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. He doesn't lash out in anger, but he takes her son up to the room where I'm sure he had fought many battles in prayer. And God is about to do something through Elijah that up till this date he had never done in the history of humanity. He is going to bring someone back to life. By the way, do you have an upper room of sorts? You say, I don't need one. I don't want one. That just shows you're unregenerate. Do you have an upper room, a place where you can meet God, where you can convene with God? Remember, James tells us in the New Testament that he was a man of effectual, fervent, earnest prayer. He reminds us that the effectual, fervent prayer of an earnest, of, of a prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And to illustrate it, he uses Elijah. And so when this tragedy comes, what does he do first? He goes to God in prayer. By the way, when tragedy comes into your life, where do you go first? So we're told in verse 20, he called to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? He is honest, as seen in the question he asks. He does not know why this boy has died. In essence, he's saying, Lord, what are you doing? What is it, Lord? Oh, God, what do you mean by this? His prayer really begins with a question. And he's pleading the case of this widow before the Lord God. Have you ever done that? Have you ever put yourself in prayer for another person, pleading their case, interceding for them? So very often we think when people are in distress that we just need to answer their why questions. But sometimes we don't know the answer to their why questions. When my son and daughter-in-law lost our little grandbaby, I couldn't tell them why. But I had a throne of grace that I could approach and plead with God on their behalf. And so verse 21 informs us that Elijah stretches himself across the boy and notice how he prays and he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, oh Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. God records for us that three times he does this. Why? Because he's showing that this is fervent, earnest prayer. In Jesus' language, it's asking, seeking, knocking prayer. 
Have you ever been into the presence of God where the pain of the problem is so great you just fall on your face before God and you lay it all out? That's what Elijah's doing. There's an example much like this in 2 Kings 19. You can turn there or you can just listen if you want. Let me set the context. Hezekiah, he's a good king, which tells you he's in the southern kingdom, Judah. He is uh, ruling. And at this point, the Assyrians have overthrown the 10 northern tribes, taken them away into captivity, and now they're threatening the two southern tribes, which at this time Hezekiah is giving leadership to. 2 Kings 19, I'm reading beginning in verse 10. Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying. This is one of the messengers of the pagan kings sending him to Hezekiah, saying, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did the gods of those nations which my fathers destroyed deliver them, even Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the sons of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Shepharvim, and of Hena and Ivah? Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, And he went into the house of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. He's saying, Lord, read this letter. Listen to what they are saying about you, my God. Read this letter. Hear their threats. I hope you've fallen on your face before God and and just laid it all out before him. Now, God already knew the problem, and Hezekiah and Elijah both knew that God knew the problem. They weren't informing God of anything. You're simply, earnestly, fervently asking God to identify with you in your problem. And sometimes that's what faith does. Look at verse 15. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heavens and earth. You made heaven and earth. He's saying, God, there's no one greater than you. It's a beautiful picture, and you can read his powerful prayer. You might want to read it this afternoon in verses 16 through 19. And if you know the rest of this story, through this prayer, Hezekiah the king moved the hand of God and stayed the Assyrians. That's what Elijah is doing. He's stretched out over the top of this boy. He says, God, this boy is dead. I beg you, please raise him up. Maybe he's saying, Lord, if need be, take, my, take the life out of me and give it to this boy. We don't know all that's transpiring in his heart and mind. But we do know this is an earnest prayer. I don't think he is setting some precedent as to how we should pray. There is no such precedent before him or after. But three times over, he's stretching himself over this boy. And in faith and in earnestness, he's asking God to work. God had already said back in verse 14, I'm going to provide for the widow and presumably for the boy until the famine is over. God, what kind of 
testimony is this to me as a man of God? And no doubt this man who lived in the room above her house had probably even fallen in love with this little kid. Oh God, move, please intervene, please do something for your own glory. And so God answers, verse 22 informs us. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. That's what we need. Earnest, fervent prayer for the glory of God. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. God forgive us for our cold, lukewarm, half-hearted, take it or leave it kind of prayers, which for the most part are nothing more than a mark of unbelief. And so because of the compliance of Elijah's faith, because of his obedience, that led to the challenge of Elijah's faith, and so he's able to realize the confirmation of faith, the confirmation of faith. Notice, God raised up the boy, verse 23, Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah says, see, your son is alive. What kind of promise would it be if Elijah told the widow that God would only take care of her and then her son died? God could have done that, but he chose not to. He promised to meet this woman's need and he does it on every level. He does it through the miraculous supply of food and now by raising her son from the dead. Verse 24, then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Oh, that your faith, my faith, would be so developed and so alive that someone would say, he is a man of God, she is a woman of God. The message they preach is the truth of God. God is still looking for men and women, teenagers, boys and girls who will believe God by faith. Now let me make three applications as we close our time off. Number one, if our faith is to develop, then when God provides, he does so, understand he does so based on his word and we need to obey. When God provides, he does so based on his word and we need to obey. Trusting God by faith involves hearing a word from God. And I'm not talking about the Sarah Young Jesus calling nonsense or the Beth Moore who gets direct text messages from God. That's sheer folly and error and false teaching. I'm talking about the person who spends time in the word of God and then God takes the revelation that he has written here on the pages of scripture and he illumines it to your heart so that you might walk by faith. Think about Elijah said, God told Elijah, go to Zarephath, find a widow. And what does he do? He goes. He arose and he went. And his faith is in direct response to what God had said. That's Hebrews 11. Person after person after person, God says something and they respond in faith. Noah built an ark and he builds an ark for the next 120 plus years. God told Abraham to pack up and move to Mesopotamia, to leave Mesopotamia and go to the place where God was going to show him. And he has no idea where he is going, what direction to go, how far it is. But because he had a clear word from God, he walks and he walks and he walks. To use Jesus' metaphor, he walks to the ends of the earth. 
like the queen did coming to hear Solomon's wisdom because he walked nearly 1,200 miles before then God appeared to him and said, Abraham, this is the place and we call today Israel. You see, faith, true faith, always responds in obedience. It believes what God has said. And God did not bring this widow to Elijah. He sent Elijah to the widow, which, by the way, is a reminder to me that very often God's provision involves human responsibility. You can't say, well, Lord, give me a job and just sit around waiting for the phone to ring. No, faith responds in obedience. It expectantly looks for God to provide. And to sit there and do nothing is a mark of unbelief. A widow was told to take the last of her flour and her oil and to make a meal. And verse 15 said, what did she do? She did. She did. She obeyed according to the word of the Lord. That's what faith is. It's staking everything on what God has promised. Now, some of you may know more apologetics or philosophy or theology than this widow ever knew. But it's not sheer knowledge that matures. You can have five degrees after your name and be an infant in the realm of faith. This widow learned how to walk by faith one step at a time, and she learned through her affliction. It reminds me of Psalm 119, 71. The psalmist said, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. See, it's often in the crucibles of life that God is going to develop us. And so this widow, what she had was just an unexpected event. Suddenly her boy is dead, the one whom she had been giving everything for. She was living for this little guy. And for you, there may be some unexpected crucible. It might be the death of a child. It might be the accident you have. It might be the job you lost. It might be the engagement that was broken. It might be the marriage that you're in that has been filled with storms from day one and you never thought of such a thing would happen. And so for many of us, the crucible is some unexpected event. And as James affirms, trials come in many sizes and shapes and colors. But one of the marks of maturity is that it trusts God through it. It believes that God will never leave us nor forsake us, that he'll be right there with us in the crucible. And so the first lesson I learned is that when God provides, he always does so based on his word and we need to obey. But secondly, when God provides, he may provide in ways that we don't expect. The longer you walk with God, the more you discover that you can't put God in a box, that his ways are often unpredictable. I mean, think about Elijah. His dealings with the Lord just remind us of this simple truth. I mean, back in verse 4, we studied it last week. God said, I've commanded the ravens to provide for you there. An Israelite reading this would cringe a little bit. When they read that statement, because according to Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14, this is one of the unclean animals. He's a scavenger. And God is going to use an unclean scavenger to bring him food. Ravens, I mean, they were off limits in the mind of a Jew. And yet God brings him bread, lechem. It's a, it's a, it's a Hebrew word that can refer to literal bread or just food. And they brought also meet morning and evening 
What kind of meat? Don't ask Elijah, just cook it well and eat it. I don't know what they brought him. Maybe they brought only kosher food, but they brought it. And then when the brook finally dries up, arise, go to Zarephath. I've commanded a widow to provide for you there. Go over to the heart of enemy territory, and a widow will provide for you there. That's an oxymoron. A widow is going to provide for me there? You know, it's not like widows back in those days could go to night school and get a degree in computers and get a job in some office. No, they were the poorest of the poor without being married. They'd have dirt under their fingernails, scratching out their existence from day to day. You don't go to the poorest people in the community. But again, God's ways are creative, and his ways are not our ways. And if God chooses to use dirty birds in the poorest of widows to pull it off, then he can do it. Here's the point. You just don't put God in a box. We need, as James says, to let the trials have their perfect results. That's a choice that we might be perfect, teleos, mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So this chapter just instructs us that faith is often forged under fire. And when you are in the crucible of a hard time, God wants to strengthen you, not weaken you. He wants to grow you and mature you. Third and finally, I learned from this passage that when God provides, we must not ignore his provision. While God chose the Hebrew people to be his chosen people, he did not choose them exclusively. God promised to make Abraham a great nation and that through him all the families of the world would be blessed. Jesus reminded the Samaritan woman in John 4 that salvation is from the Jews. And this salvation was not hidden. Israel was to share it, and ultimately God's servant, the Messiah. God said of him, I will also make you a light of the nation so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so here's a woman living in the heart of Gentile land where Baal worship is followed, and she is a believer in the God of Israel. How did she come to faith? Well, she responded to the light she had. And light responded to brought more life. Remember, this is centuries before Peter ever goes into Cornelius' house there in Acts 10 and preaches to that Gentile riffraff. But she came to faith in the same way Jethro and Rahab and Ruth and Nahum and Abednelech came to faith. They responded to the light they had as Gentiles and they believed in the God of Israel. Peter said in Acts 10, after Cornelius and his home comes to faith, I most certainly understand now that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. You say, okay, pastor, I still don't get your point that when God provides, we must not ignore his provision. Well, actually... My point comes from some divine commentary. So fast forward to Luke chapter 4, and we'll conclude with this. Luke chapter 4, if you remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. As the prophets corporately said, he would be raised in Nazareth. He makes his headquarters Capernaum, and that city prophetically is the only city that would fit the prophecy in Isaiah, and he dies in Jerusalem. So he's in Nazareth. 
his public ministry has begun. And he stands up as the guest rabbi and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me in verse 18, Luke 4, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the scroll, gave it back to the synagogue attendant. And he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all the people are ooing and eyeing, and what a great preacher. What gracious words are falling from his lips. But he's not a men pleaser. And so he continues his sermon. Look now at verse 24, Luke 4. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elijah the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Nahum the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill, which is on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Some of you have been there with me. It's a class A spot. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, why were these hometown folks so filled with rage? Well, because there were plenty of widows and lepers that Elijah and Elisha could have healed, but they didn't go there. Elijah, if you remember, he went to Heathensburg. He went to Gentile territory. And in doing so, God was bypassing Israel because of their unbelief and conferring a blessing of grace on a Gentile. And that made them mad. After all, they were God's chosen people. But just because God chose them as a nation didn't mean automatically they were all saved. Korah and his whole bunch were literally alive, swallowed up into hell. And so when Jesus reminded the folks of Nazareth in this passage, he's basically saying, just because you are Jewish does not make you right with God. There were some Gentiles in Elijah's day who were more right with God than Jews were. And we could say the same today. Some Gentiles think, well, I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. I'm a Christian. I've been baptized, I've been confirmed, I may even go to a good church, so that must make me right with God. You know, God and me, we're tight. That's what the folks in that day thought. But God is not a respecter of persons. It's not a matter of whether you're Jewish or Gentile. It's a matter of whether you've been born again. So God provides for the people of Israel. He's providing for the people of Israel in this day by the things he does. Some of you are in Proverbs 3 today because it's the third of the month. And you read already, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as the father corrects his son in whom he delights. Discipline comes on two levels, one to correct us, the other just to shape us. You can be right in the center of God's will and come under God's discipline. We only think of it in terms of spanking. There's two sides to it in Scripture. Elijah, like this woman, was right in the center of God's will, and God brought a crucible. Paul, if you remember, 2 Corinthians 12, pled three times, God, take this trial, take this thorn of the, in the flesh away from me, 
But God says, no, I want to use it. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. God simply told Paul, I'm all that you need. And we need to understand that when our faith is in the crucible, that God is not like a doctor who says, you know, just take this medicine three times a day and you'll be fine. Sometimes there's no quick antidote. And we just have to trust God even when we don't know what is happening. And as you study God's word and you spend time with him, God will give you everything you need to be sustained. This is true for the believer, and it's true for the unbeliever, which is why Jesus said to the people of his day, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, he's the light of the world. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. If you despise God's word, if you just arrogantly yawn at God's word and do nothing with God's truth, God can remove that light. Jesus said the devil can be given permission that he might snatch the seed that you may not believe and be saved. There is an urgency to responding in faith for the believer to grow and for the unbeliever to be saved. Now, our Father, we thank you that this was written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come, that this is not simply what you have said, but what you are saying to your people, that all Scripture is God-breathed, it is profitable. So help us wherever we may be, wherever we may be in our journey with you as believers to take these truths today and to apply them to our lives. I pray today for some of the saints who are listening, who are members of this church, some who are not, who are listening in another part of the country or the world. But they love you. But they are in the thick of a hot crucible they don't understand it. Help them to do what Elijah did, just to lay it all out before you. You already know it, but help us to lay it out before you that we might come to a throne of grace to find help in time of need. And help someone today, Father, who's never been saved to realize that Jesus paid it all there on Golgotha that he died for 100% of their sin and proved it when he was raised from the dead so that he can invite them to call on his name and you will instantly and forever save them. Help someone to say, Lord Jesus, save me. We ask it to the glory of God and in Jesus' holy name, amen.